At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Why do we have insights when our mind is quiet? How do insights play a role in our ability to learn, and when do they impact the trajectory of our lives? Welcome to Insight Out, where we explore these questions and dissect how insights influence who we are and ultimately who we become. I interview New York Times bestselling authors and some of the most influential minds of our time to find out what insights have helped to make them who they are. When I realized that the world worked in many different ways, I'm going to choose to create a life that is specifically designed for me. I see infinite capacity to think and create. That's the magic that we all have. You can tap into that any point in your life. You just have to decide to do it. And as a leader, you have to be a transition figure. As Dr. Covey said, be a light, not a judge. Be a model, not a critic. If you're like me, constantly working to design a life that will allow you to reach your fullest potential so that you can leave your mark on this planet, then you're in the right place. I'm glad to have you on this journey and hope you enjoy this episode of Inside Out. Mindfulness is not just for yogis, or so says my guest and close friend, Jay Abbasi. Jay is the perfect ambassador for mindfulness because he doesn't pretend to be anything that he's not. A native East Coaster, the guy is as authentic as they come. Jay transitioned away from corporate life to serve his mission to help individuals and businesses develop a mindfulness mindset that will lead to less stress, more focus and resiliency, and ultimately lead to happier lives for the people that embrace it. Jay's got this knack for breaking down complex ideas in a way that makes them easy to understand. In this episode, we cover a lot of ground, but I think this will fly by. Here are just a few of the highlights. We talk about how Jay developed the giver's mindset that he has today, and it wasn't always that way as you'll hear in his story. We geek out on the neuroscience behind why mindfulness matters. Jay gives us a brain anatomy lesson, including some clever ways to remember different parts of the brain. He also talks about what he believes is our superpower when it comes to being mindful. He shares suggestions on how to avoid placing judgment on ourselves. We talk about how we should think about the different programs running in our brain and how we should think about how to effectively rewrite them. Jay also shares some of his daily rituals, including affirmations that he does each day, some of his meditation techniques, and some of the not-so-common approaches he uses in his mindfulness practice. And we get super tactical. We talk about the reason why intention attention, and non-judgment are so crucial to having a mindfulness practice that's effective. We wrap up the call by talking about how to embed mindfulness in the workplace, a place where it's clearly, clearly needed. This is easily one of my favorite episodes yet, and I hope you enjoyed as much as me. Without further ado, let's jump in to the conversation. Jay Abbasi, welcome to Inside Out. Thank you so much, Billy. It's an honor to be here with you, my man. We are finally doing it, my friend. Ugh. We've been wanting to do this for a while. And obviously there's backstory. We've known each other for years. The first time I met you, I instantly 
knew you were someone special. I knew you were someone that deserved the reputation that you had. You know, you hear this all the time. Your reputation definitely preceded you. Multiple people came to me and said, you got to meet this guy, Jay Abbasi. You got to meet this guy, Jay Abbasi. And then we met and it's just like, okay, now I get it. I get why everyone was singing your praises. So yeah, once again, welcome, man. I appreciate that, Billy. I remember when I first met you, I don't think I've said this to you directly, but I remember seeing you on stage facilitating a training and just crushing it. And I said, I want to be that guy. <laughs> That's really what I said to myself. I want to be up there with him. And then, you know, we got the opportunity to do that like years later, which was amazing. That's humbling. Thank you for sharing that. And wow, I don't even know how to respond, but why don't, why don't we dig in? What I want to start with is you've described your childhood as a happy one, the youngest of three kids with two older sisters, Middle Eastern family. You've admitted that you were spoiled growing up. And it's funny because when I put this story together, I thought, man, that describes my dad. He was the youngest of three kids, two older sisters, and he constantly was being teased for just how spoiled he was, absolutely adored by his mother, much like you're adored by your mother. In 2014, you had your father suddenly pass away because of a heart attack, which I know was a critical pivot point in your own life and really how you found mindfulness. But before we get into that part of the story, I want to go back to childhood. And I want to think, how did your childhood inform the person you are today and help to direct the work that you're doing in the mindfulness space as a coach, a consultant, and a thought leader? Yeah, it's a great question, Billy. It's interesting because we all have conditioning from childhood. And the question is, as we get older, do we recognize that conditioning? Do we notice it? And for me, my conditioning as a child was one that was spoiled, who got the things that he wanted. And if I cried loud enough, I would get all the toys and the food that I wanted, right? And the ice creams and the cakes and everything. <laughs> and so having that experience, I had this huge shift as I got older to realize that the world does not revolve around me. Mm. I am not the center of the universe. And the contrast was so obvious that it created such a shift in how I treated others. Because now I make a concerted effort to ensure that my attention is not on what I get, my attention is on what I give. I say that because I experienced it the other way growing up. Mm -hmm. And then some life events, and you mentioned the passing of my father, along with my own introspection and what I've read and what I learned, made me realize that the better way to live life is to give and to see others as incredibly valuable and to remove the ego from the situation. It's so interesting because I, I think there's a parallel here. It's from one end of the spectrum to the other because you are truly one of the most giving. And when I say giving, it's a buzzword. Everyone hears it, but giving without conditions, you truly embody what that means. And it's such a polar opposite of what you grew up with. And the parallel that I want to highlight is that of your father, because you and I have had conversations about your dad and I know you cared about him deeply, but I also know that he was not somebody that showed his emotions or that felt comfortable showing his emotions. And now look at you today, who's as vulnerable as they come, your authenticity, another word that gets thrown around, but like it describes Jay Abbasi and anybody that knows you knows that 
you are going to be your true, authentic self. Talk a little bit about that juxtaposition that exists and maybe some thoughts that you've had around it. I appreciate you saying that, Billy. It is similar in that when we look at our parents, oftentimes we either reenact the way they are and they end up being the example for us and we embody it, or we see it as a teaching, as a way to be a little different than the way they were. And my father, he had a lot of emotion that would ride within him. He would be very emotional, but he'd hold it in. He'd suppress it. And I'd see how much it would upset him, how much it would bother him. Hold it all in, and then he would end up where it would come out in one way, shape, or form. And it may not have even been about what was really bothering him. But no matter what, I always knew my dad loved me. I always knew my dad loved me. Mm -hmm. And I always he always took care of me. But the part that was missing was we didn't get so many opportunities to express it between one another. And I realized that when I, the father myself, at the time when my father passed away, my daughter was two, I didn't want that relationship with my daughter. And that was probably what really brought it out the most. When we become parents and we look into the eyes of our child and there's so much love that comes out of us. And I know my father had the same love for me that I have for my daughter. I know it. I know it. The difference, of course, is what I learned in observing him was I'm not going to hold it in. I'm going to express it. And I also realized in developing my own mindfulness practice was that when we resist, when we hold on to things, they end up only getting worse and worse. And we have to find healthy and natural ways to express them so that we don't, we don't go through so much unnecessary suffering that I think that is avoidable if you have the right practices. Yeah. And I think your ability to show what your dad wasn't able to show, but you knew he felt is going to, Amelia, your daughter will, she may not recognize it for years and years to come, but she will hopefully gain the programming and the positive reinforcement of what it's like to show, to show love because you're fortunate in that you have taken the life trajectory that you have, but the reality is some don't, and you've made it your life's mission to relieve human suffering and to improve the health and wellness of other people through mindfulness. And we're going to talk about what mindfulness is in a minute. Before we do, I'm just curious. I mad respect. If I were Ali G, I'd be like, mad respect, man, mad respect. <laughs> I mad respect how you've resisted the tendency to be selfish because selfish people, they're in survival mode. This is the way you've described it. They're in survival mode. And you instead, you're in the giver mode, but not giver mode because you're thinking, oh, what am I going to get? You're giving because that's what you want to do and because you know how important it is. But how have you managed to do it? I've managed to do it by really getting clear on my life's purpose. And I would encourage everybody to do that if you haven't gone through that exercise. What is the why behind what you do? And not in the surface level I watch a YouTube video, I think I understand it, and then I move on type of way. I'm referring to asking yourself why over and over and over again until you are really clear as to what mm. it is you are here to do. And what you're going to find is if you do this, it's never going to be to make money. It's never going to be to get power. That's not what your deepest and the, the core of your being is going to tell you if you ask. And I find that the people who go through this exercise, what they all find is that it usually has nothing to do with material possession. It has nothing to do with getting something more things for oneself. It has everything to do with what you are giving to others. And when you are really clear on that and you really know it, 
everything that you do, everything that you say is coming, is fueled by your deepest why. And I think one of the things that stood out about what you just said is that keep asking the question, why? Because it's a layer thing. You're going to get your first answer, but then you go, why? Go to another layer. Why that? Okay, now why that? Is that what you mean? And what other specific tactic or approach do you recommend to get the why, the real why, the real compelling purpose, the reason you were put on this planet Earth? How do you do that in addition to asking why over and over again? Exactly what you said. It is asking four, five, six, seven, however many times it takes. So why do you want to do that? Well, why do you want to do that? And why do you want to do that? And you get to the true core and be very clear on it. That's step one. And then the next step is look at yourself like you are this avatar, this character. And in this character that you you know yourself, what are the strengths this character has? How can this character bring this mission, this why that you have to others in the most effective way that will resonate. So my skill set is I love talking to people. I love having an opportunity to facilitate, an opportunity to train and coach. I have that strength. It's a natural strength and I've developed it over the years. And this is my way to communicate it. Other people, it might be writing. Other people, it might be marketing a product or service. Whatever it is, know what your strength is and that way you can bring it to the world. And I would also say, once you know that, You have to wake up every morning and embody that person. So it's almost Mm. like, have you ever seen um, Man on the Moon? I I don't think I actually, I'm the worst with remembering movies. So I know that I'm familiar with that movie. Well, anyway, so Jim Carrey, he, when he got on set, he became Andy Kaufman, right? The the movie's about Andy Kaufman. He became Andy Kaufman. He's a method actor, but he, he would shoot the scenes. He would stay Andy Kaufman and he would go to sleep Andy Kaufman and he'd wake up Andy Kaufman. You have to then embody this role of who you are and what you are serve, how you are serving the world. And you have to wake up every morning and get into that role. It's not in any way manipulative. It's being authentic to who you truly are, but standing and not mm-hmm, letting mm-hmm. other things pull you away, the imposter syndrome, all that stuff. Sure, it's going to come, but stay in that role. So you are the authority and you are able to give and you are able to support others. And I think that's the way to get out of this ego mindset of I'm only here to get for me. That's that's coming from a place of lack. The character, the movie character is coming from a place of abundance. Yeah. And it's so funny that you set this up in such a way that it's relatable. And, and really everything you do, you were able to break down complex subjects and make them easy to understand. Where my mind immediately goes is thinking about my son playing video games and different characters have different skill levels. They're skilled in certain areas and we're no different. We have things that we excel at. We have things where we're not great at. And being honest with ourselves and knowing where our super strengths lie help to inform how we can take what is our why, what is our compelling purpose, and bringing that to life in, in a productive and powerful way. I want to transition into mindfulness because this is really the core of what you do in terms of helping people on so many levels, gain perspective on their life and start to lead a a self-observant life. You describe mindfulness as maintaining awareness of the present moment objectively with acceptance and doing so without judgment. Can you break that down for us like bit by bit and let us know what each of those segments mean? So when we are caught up in our minds of thinking and caught up in our emotions of feeling, we are dwelling on a past thought or we are ruminating about a future scenario. Mm -hmm. All of our distress, all of our anxiety, 
all of our difficult emotions come from the past and future, staying in this past or the future. Mindfulness offers a way in which you can maintain awareness of the present moment, the moment that we are in here and now, and to do so without the stories. So when I say objectively, I'm meaning without the story that you're telling yourself. The mind is constantly offering up all judgments about what it sees. And the judgments that occur are what oftentimes are what's causing you all this unnecessary distress. So if you can remove the judgment and observe what's happening within you and outside of you, objectively, with acceptance, it, and that doesn't mean resignation. I don't mean to resign to if someone's you know treating you poorly, you let that happen. No, it is looking at it objectively. Here is the situation. Like a scientist would observe what it is it's studying. So imagine a scientist that's studying ants, for example. The scientists, what, what they would do, they would mm-hmm. look into the microscope, they would look at the ants and observe what's happening. They wouldn't want the ants to behave a certain way. They wouldn't get mad at ants if the ants weren't moving the way they want them to. They're observing and they're gathering the information without all this crazy analysis. They're just observing. From that place, we find peace. And from that place, we have better decision-making. We are better focused. We are healthier, both mentally and physically, because there's a connection to the body as well. So you've mentioned a few things there. I want you to expand on that. What are some of the other benefits of mindfulness? You mentioned focus. You mentioned happiness. What are some of the other things that if somebody's going to say, okay, I'm going to actually pay attention to this thing, mindfulness that I keep hearing about. I'm actually going to take some action and do something. What are the benefits? So I could geek out on science, Billy, and and you and I have had one. Oh, we're about to get there, man. That's like the next topic is neuroscience. So Uh, Okay. I could dive in a little bit now and then we could expand if you want a little bit more, but sure. Because that's what came to mind. We don't have only opinions that tell us the benefits of mindfulness. We're well beyond that. We have scientific evidence. We have research. And one of the, the ones that stood out to me and what really blew my mind about the research behind mindfulness is how it impacts the connection between the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala. So quick science lesson, it won't take long. The amygdala is the area of the brain that triggers fight or flight, perceives threat. And you see a bear coming, the amygdala fires off. You think that you're about to get fired, the amygdala fires off. That's where cortisol starts to flow out throughout the body. When you're normally in that state, the prefrontal cortex, the front area of your brain that is responsible for cognitive thinking, reasoning, logic, problem solving, it turns off. But Mm -hmm. what mindfulness offers you, and we see this in brain scans, is a pathway that gets developed between the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala. Because you are in a state of being a meditative state, and you are there in the present moment, you are using and strengthening that front area of your brain, the prefrontal cortex. So now you have this very objective, very logical, think of a, I use the example like CEO type character in your brain that is telling the amygdala, hey, relax. It's not life or death. The situation is going to be okay. So the benefit that I like to describe that as is the space between stimulus and response. Because throughout life, all we have are stimulus and response. Something happens, we respond to it. Something happens, we respond to it. When we don't have any space, we are reactive. And we're reactive according to our conditioning and our programming. However we were raised, whatever our genetics are, that's how we react. But mindfulness offers us the space by which we can look at the stimulus and we can look at the response and determine how we relate to both. Do we cling on and ride that wave of anger or do we look at it and say, okay, anger is something I'm experiencing right now. 
I feel it. I'm embracing it. I'm allowing it to be there, but I can let go of it. But I would also say we have studies that show it improves memory. It improves your ability to learn, your ability to sleep, and it helps with a lot of the more difficult diagnosis that people will have, like depression and other chronic illnesses. It helps tremendously to bounce people back from difficulty, anxiety, OCD, those kind of things. But for the everyday person, you have greater mental strength. And of all the things that we do in our lives, the physical exercise we do, the time we spend with our family, all of which is important, why are we not taking enough time to take care of the most important asset that we have? And that is my life's work, to help people to give themselves that self-care that's so desperately needed. What a wonderful answer. And I wish you could see my notes because literally you went like boom, boom, boom. Like I, I'm going to show you after because it's hilarious how on point you were with exactly what I was looking for. And just to expand upon what you've said, the stress that we feel and the ability to be resilient, which you alluded to, these are some of the major, major benefits. And thank you for bringing up the amygdala, as well as prefrontal cortex. Talk a little bit about the CEO concept, because I really like that concept. You give names to the parts of the brain. So tell us the parts of the brain one more time and why you name them what you name them. Yeah, absolutely. So the prefrontal cortex, I named the CEO because it's a CEO is responsible for executive functioning. It runs the show in a way. It's not exactly that way in the brain where it's not always operating. The brain has modules, but it's ultimately the part of the brain that uses reason and looks at what's happening objectively. We all have it, but some of us are able to access it better than others. And that's what mindfulness will allow us to do to access that area of our brain. I call the amygdala, I call her Amy the amygdala, and she is the jumpy superhero. I call Amy the jumpy superhero because while she is there to protect you, and she means well, the superhero means well. The amygdala is quite jumpy. It perceives threat even when it's not, there isn't much to be threatened with in that situation. The way in which a brain reacts to the bear coming at them versus the interpretation of an email or something that feels, and it reacts exactly the same way. It, the mm -hmm. brain can't tell the difference between a real threat and a perceived threat. The amygdala will react exactly the same way. Interesting. Yeah. And then um, the other two I have are Ingrid, the insula. So the insula has to do with our empathy and has to do with our desire and our connection. The insula is an area of the brain that is also improved with mindfulness practice. And then the last one I have in my online program is Hippo, the hippocampus. And the hippocampus has to do with memory, learning. And this is another area of the brain where brain scans show the gray matter will actually increase following weeks and weeks of mindfulness practice. The brain scans fascinate me because this fMRI study and the strengthening of the neuroplasticity in our brain, it's like creating these pathways. These studies actually show and give tangible objective proof to what you're saying. What else do we need for this to be so obvious of a solution to help us in these areas, man? I know, I know. It's, it's great to have because what's fascinating to me, Billy, is we have thousands of years of people experiencing this. So mm -hmm. it's almost like, you know, all these books have been written. All these people have been talking about the experiences that they have, where they are calmer, they are able to respond rather than react, they are sharper, they are more focused. But now the science has caught up to the thousands of years of anecdotal evidence and what people have been saying. And it's exciting. It's, it's an exciting time for the industry. And I think more and more people are starting to realize it. 
the question becomes, how deeply are people committed to it? Because I think now at this point, and you've even said this to me more before, Billy, everyone knows that this is helpful. But what's stopping people from actually doing it? And it's unfortunate that our daily habits of what we wake up and do and, and what we feel is most important take us away from things like this. And so the challenge becomes, how do you make time for something like this rather than look for time? And, and the answer is prioritizing. This has to be an imp- the most one of the most important things that you do every day. And in that commitment, I promise you the results. The science will prove it and you'll experience it because that's what's great about it. It is experiential. And it does take practice. And one of the things that as you were talking that I thought of is this, really, it's a pause button. And you mentioned the stimulus versus the, the ultimate, the response, right? Which for anyone out there listening, you'll hear Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning as it references this. Although I'm going to challenge that because there is some debate over it really was him or not. So for anyone that wants to go deep into the weeds and study on this, send me a note, send Jay a note, let us know your findings, regardless of where it came from. Because to your point, there's books and books written about this stuff. It just makes sense. If we are reactive okay, to something that happens and we are instantly doing something because we feel a certain way because of a physiological response Cortisol, as you just mentioned, is flooding. And all of a sudden, we're going to make this decision out of fear, out of panic, out of Amy getting spooked up in our head. And she's like, hey, we better do something because she thinks it's a, a lion when in reality, it's a kitty cat coming to purr on our lap. The question that I have for you, you call this ability to hit the pause button a superpower because what you're effectively doing is you're stopping, you're observing, you're thinking, and then you are then taking action. And it sounds on the surface so simple and easy, yet I think people struggle with it. How can people maybe not struggle with it as much and be better at practicing it? Yeah. So the struggle is that we go down patterns and the patterns are really wired in the brain. It doesn't mean that they're hardwired. You, you alluded to neuroplasticity. Mm-hmm. We know that the brain is plastic. We know that the new pathways can be developed. But at the same time, some pathways are, are really grooved deep in the brain. I mean, if you think about it, there are so many instances where things happen where you didn't even realize they happened, right? I mean, sometimes for anyone listening and Billy, for you, you ever get in the car, you drive somewhere, you, re- you got so- to the other place and you didn't even know how you got there. That's right. You don't realize it until after the fact. And that's happening all the time. It's happening all the time. The question is, do you notice it? Are you aware of it? Are you noticing how, you know, your child not listening to something that you asked, what it's doing to you and how that irritation is building and building to where you say something and you regret that you said it, mm-hmm. how the pressures of work are constantly pulling at you and you're able to push through. And then all of a sudden it causes you to snap, right? What we're talking about here, and I use uh, the example of a river, it's like things that are coming down the river, you know, you're, you're catching it downstream and it's starting to fill up. We're going to move you upstream to take care of all the things that are coming down the river that someone, you know, that's being placed, the anger, the stress, the anxiety. We move up the river so it, we can remove it before it makes its way all the way down and starts to build up, right? How to do this is not as sometimes overcomplicated, but what we're really talking about is how you focus your attention. Where is your attention? That's the whole game. The game is attention. Bringing attention, strengthening attention, starts with having something that you use as an anchor to bring you to the present moment. 
to be aware of what's actually happening. So rather than being in that state where you drive from one place to another, you don't know how you got there. In the same way, someone does something to you and causes you to respond with anger. When you can bring your attention to the present moment, and you see what's happening, you're able to respond better. And using things like the breath, the body, anything that's objective reality, using your senses. So right now I'm sitting in this chair. I can feel the weight of my body in the chair. I can feel my toes on the ground. I can feel my face smiling as I'm looking at you. Like all of these things are my objective reality and it brings me directly to the present moment. And anyone can do this. It's just a matter of how consistently you're doing it to develop the strength of this practice. Mm, it is repetition, right? And as you're talking, what I'm thinking about is I remember when I travel because it's all new and our brain are hardwired to frankly ignore things that aren't new and exciting. It just tunes out the boring stuff because it's seen it before. It feels like it could be on autopilot. It feels like it could be driving from point A to point B. And yet we do have the ability to consciously draw attention to something. And you mentioned the breath. You mentioned thinking about your, the chair that you're sitting in. And you also talked about how it's, it does come down to repetition and to practicing it. Do you have a suggestion on, I mean, what do you use mostly when you're thinking of attention? Is it your breath? Is it, what is the thing that you use the most? And what have you found? Cause I, I know you're a big believer in that everybody's different. What's going to work for one person may not work for another. So I'm not asking you to prescribe something that, Hey, this is the only way, but what are maybe a couple ways so people could try some things out, see what works best for them. My go-to is my breathing. We take about 20,000 breaths a day. It's always available. It's easily accessible, right? Right. And we just, it's totally. just like how you described, you know, we're doing things all the time and we're not paying attention to them. How often are you paying attention to your breathing? Right? Yeah, never. Practically and, and never. So it's the most <laughs> obvious and the easiest anchor to bring us to the present moment. Usually with my clients and when I get asked this question, I always refer back to the breathing, to the breath. And it's not trying to force your breath. It's not trying to change the way you breathe. It's the way I described the ants before, right? It's observing as if you're just seeking to, it's observing with curiosity. That's really the goal because the way you described the novelty you get when you travel, in, in the same way, it's peaking curiosity. You're curious about what you're going to see. You have the same approach with your breathing. You're curious. You're curious as to the flow of the breathing. Is it hot or cold? How deep am I breathing? What is the sensation on the nose and the mouth? Or even how is my stomach rising and falling with every breath? Mm -hmm. When you have that kind of an affectionate curiosity, you're not curious like you're trying to judge, criticize. It's affectionate. It's playful. Other ways in which you can enter into the present moment, I, I always encourage is the way I described the body before and noticing how the body feels in the present moment. Are there any pains, any aches? How do the, the hands feel? The palms are normally a little warm, the toes tingling, the muscles in the face. Like you'll be surprised if you actually bring your attention to your face, how often you're tightening up your face and you can just loosen the muscles in your face. And that alone is a way to bring you to the present moment. The last one I'll mention here, it's bringing your attention onto attention itself. What I mean by that is you're always observing something outside of you. Your attention is on the objects and maybe, or you're even thinking about your thoughts, right? But what you can do to bring yourself to the present moment is observe you observing something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Be the watcher of the experience. 
And when people get this, they immediately come to a still place because thoughts will just disappear when you're observing the observer. Okay. So I'm going to play cynic for a minute and just say, okay, I hear it. I think I understand it. But when I use my breath as an anchor and I'm consciously observing, thinking about my breath, what then? What what does that really do? Or how do I make sure that I'm doing it the right way so that it's actually helping me be more mindful? Like, what is the connection between thinking about the breath and being more mindful? When your attention is on your breathing, you are focusing on one object. And what's going to happen, because it happens to everybody, is that your mind's going to wander. If you make it, this is your first time doing it, if you make it to five seconds without your mind wandering, I'd say you're already monk or a yogi, you've been doing this for a while. Five <laughs> seconds is impressive, but it's almost like a little game that you play with yourself in a playful way. But your question is, well, what does it do for me? Like, what's, what's, what's the connection there? Every time you're doing this, every time the mind wanders and you bring it back to the breath, I want you to think of it like there's a bicep curl happening in your brain. Mm. It's no different than if you go to the gym and actually do that because there's this little pain that you feel, right? With every time you lift weight, it feels discomfort, right? You're doing something different. In the same way, when your mind is being brought back to the breathing, you're doing that type of exercise. And that's what we see happening. The changes in the brain, the neuroplasticity we're talking about are happening at that exact moment when the person going through the fMRI scan is going from mind wandering back to the breath. Wow. I love that analogy because it's relatable. Anybody that's ever done any kind of workout at a gym knows what that feels like. And the more you do it, the more your muscles grow. I want to talk about judgment for a moment because you're an advocate for not judging yourself and for how you feel and showing self-compassion and grace. How do you do this? It isn't the natural tendency, is it? No, not at all. Yeah. The natural tendency is to judge oneself, to be critical of oneself. How do you do it? Well, one thing that has helped me in the past is to remember that anything that I fail at, anything that I fall short on, others have done exactly the same. We are not alone in our mistakes and our failures. Others have experienced what we've experienced. Also, the thing that helps is knowing that any judgment that you have on yourself is only poisoning yourself even more. There is no value that you get. So I am a big fan of pattern interrupts. And so pattern interrupts, the way I describe them are questions that you ask yourself to shift away from a pattern that you normally go down. And if your pattern is judgment, the practical tip, the thing to do is to ask yourself a question that will change your pattern. And there are many questions, but one that uh, my clients found useful is, are these thoughts useful? The second one would be, how do they behave? And when you ask yourself a question, you're required to answer it. Your brain goes to answer it. When you're really being critical and judgmental of yourself, asking, are these thoughts useful? You're going to come to the conclusion right away that they aren't because there's no value that you're getting in judging yourself. And then how do they behave will bring you down this path of recognition that they behave in a way where they spiral and they only make it worse and worse and worse. A more long-term practice I give to my clients and what I think helps is doing practices that cultivate compassion within you. And one of my favorites is a loving kindness practice or metta meditation is what it's called, where you give yourself or you aspire to love yourself and others through affirmations in a guided practice. Mm-hmm. 
Let's talk about your daily affirmations because I, I know you have at least two that I'm familiar with. I wonder if you could share your daily affirmations and talk a little bit about why affirmations plant or embed a belief system and a way in which you can embody what it is that you're affirming through literally speaking it out loud. There's a premise that needs to be set with affirmations because I think a lot of people get confused what is meant by affirmations. I don't mean a statement by which you are just saying something and you feel like that's what you're supposed to say and you're hoping that it's going to lead to some sort of result. An affirmation is only effective when there is emotion behind it and belief behind it. Because otherwise, the mind will know what you're doing. The mind will be like, "You're you're you're just full of it, man. Like you're you're uh, that's not real. You know, they'll see it. It'll see it as fake." I have many affirmations and full transparency. I don't remember the exact ones I shared with you. I'll share two with you. Yeah. May I give of myself openly and honestly without conditions. Yeah. And may I give to others to be of service to others to serve and to serve a higher purpose. Something along those lines. But I, I think I butchered it. Yeah, yeah. It, it reminds me of the the few that I said. One that I say is, um, through this form, may the thoughts, words, and actions that are exuded from this form serve all beings and serve a higher purpose. And I say that one in the morning to start my day. And the other thing I say quite a bit, and this helps me to detach from thoughts, from things that are not who I truly am, I will say... I am not these thoughts. I am not this body. And that to me speaks to how to detach from the things that cause us so much suffering. I think if all we did was to disidentify with things that are not truly who we are, we'd find a lot of freedom. I try to affirm that each and every day. And in that affirmation and in the affirmations that I say, I do so with some breathing as well. So I will be exhaling as I say the affirmation and be fully present. I usually do my affirmations after I've practiced the meditation because then I'm still, I am present. We've talked already about programming, but I think it bears a little bit more exploration and understanding. Just talked about pattern interruptions and things of that nature, but we have these programming that exists. It's deep rooted and sometimes it's quite difficult to rewrite that programming, but we know that it can be rewritten. Curious, let's get like tactical and and specific about maybe some ways in which you advise or have found helpful when looking at how to take patterns that are deep rooted and rewriting the code, so to speak, giving yourself a software update. Yeah, yeah. Or uh, I describe them as overriding the programs. First, you have to know what the programs are. It's the first step. Mm-hmm. You got to flop. You got to right, flop. Right, right. You got to be aware. You got to be aware of the different programs that are running. And I categorize it to a few for my clients, but ultimately it usually comes down to a need for acceptance. We have so much desire to fit in with others. It is a negative bias that we're always thinking about negative things. We have a lot of programs that run in that we're never happy. We're never satisfied. We want more and more and more. And we're never going to be satisfied until we get that future, the gold on the other side of the rainbow. Or we're really just caught up our ego the way we were talking before. First is awareness. It's awareness. And then it's recognition throughout the day of when these things are running within you and taking note of it. Being like, well, wow, here, here I am. And I'm acting in a way to try and get approval from others. Mm, validation. Right. I'm trying to get validation and seeing that very, very clearly. And then the way out of it is 
through the practices of meditation, it's being very still and then allowing those thoughts to appear and to look at them objectively and to see them as the subject to the object. Because here's the thing, when we get caught up in these programs, we identify with them and we are riding that wave and we get caught and we start acting according to those programs. What we need is to stop that program from running, but the way to do that is through observation. It's not through resisting. It's not like trying to push it down. It's not like trying to replace it. I don't think we reinstall new programs. We override the program through the observation of the program and the acceptance of the program. And then when we're then faced with the situation, we see the program that's about to run. We even feel it in our bodies. Like people mm-hmm. who practice mindfulness for years, they all of a sudden they say, well, I can really sense how this feels. It really feels stronger, but you aren't so inclined to give into it. You can more easily let go. And I do think that a consistent formal meditation practice or yoga practice or something where you do it every single day incrementally helps with the overriding of a program. I don't think it's a snap your fingers, take this medicine, and you're good to go. Mm -hmm. Interesting. It's a lot like working out. You don't just have something, go to the gym one time and you're seeing instant results. You highlighted meditation. I want to spend the rest of our time getting really specific and tactical about what are some of the ways in which you can have a mindfulness practice. Some of the things that you've highlighted, you've highlighted meditation, which you get into that. I know you're big on walks, phone-free walk. You're big on journaling. And frankly speaking, all of those things I've heard over and over and over again. I'm not discounting them. I've heard them for good reason. And we could talk about those, but I want to know what haven't we heard? What are some other things that maybe would surprise the audience or maybe be a new thing that they don't hear a lot of that either you yourself have done or you know some people who have seen benefits from doing other types of activities to be more mindful? As you said, not to discount anything else. I think oftentimes what happens is we we are caught up in the novelty of things and we want the new thing because we think, That's we right. think it's shiny and it looks cool. I don't mean to discount anything that people know of and have heard of, like breathing meditation and going out for walks and journaling. All those things are effective. There's a reason they're brought up over and over again, right? I mean, there's a reason why like literally every successful person that I hear about has a morning routine that includes journaling, that includes meditation, that includes reading or walking. I mean, there's a reason for yes, that. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and, and you know, there are though many different approaches to meditation, many different things that different people t- do. And, and one that I do that maybe isn't the most common that people hear of when they first hear of meditation is more of a mantra meditation. I call it recitative meditation, where you find a a word that has meaning to you. I'm not a fan of using words that I don't know what they mean. I can't translate them. It's in different languages. So I use a word that has meaning to me. And there are many different words I use here, now, observe, release, allow. These are just a few different types of words, a few different words I'll use. And then the way the practice works is while you're sitting and you're in that place of meditation, maybe you do start with breathing meditation to start to get to that place of stillness. You then say the word with every exhale softly and you continue saying it and you continue saying it. And it is the object of your attention. And as you say it, you then quietly, it becomes more and more it's more internalized what you're saying. And I find that words that have that kind of meaning, like here, 
now, release, allow, because it very much aligns with what we're doing with mindfulness, really help to bring people to a mindful state. And if you haven't been able to get results doing other types of practices, this could be a really good entrance into a meditation practice to find that inner peace. Mm, I love that. And I also love that earlier you talked about the emotion behind the words that you say or the affirmations that you say. And I think that is a really important distinction that you brought up. This may play back to some of the stuff that you've already covered. And if so, you know, maybe you could expand upon it. But you've mentioned that there's three things you need to focus on. It's one, intention, two, attention, and three, non-judgment. Again, I know we've talked about these a little bit, but maybe if you could break down why you think those are the three steps that you need to think about. Absolutely. And those three steps go into any meditation practice or anyone looking to develop mindfulness in their life. The first thing, intention, has to do with not setting expectations that will discourage you. So in other words, if you go into meditation with a goal and you have this goal where I'm going to sit for 20 minutes and a thought's not going to enter my mind and I'm going to crush it and your mind starts racing and you start to feel discouraged, you have approached this the wrong way. So I always encourage my clients, anybody who's looking into starting a practice or really being more mindful to set intentions here's what I intend to do with my practice. I intend to be better able to manage my emotions, to improve my focus, to be happier, to be more content, to be more balanced. That's my intention. You set that intention and then you, it's like, what is it, that old infomercial? Set it and forget it, right? It's like, yeah, you set it and then you forget it. Like you just set it and then you leave it to the side and then you begin the practice. And then attention, we, I could expand on a bit. That's what this whole game is. It's attention. And when we can not get caught up in, you know, just trying to be great at this and not get lost in, am I doing this right? Let me check again. Let me go watch that other video from Jay again. Is it, is it, am I doing this the right way? Just leave that alone. Just bring it to, make it all about your attention. Where is your attention? And keep bringing your attention back to your breathing or back to whatever is the object that you're looking to use practice, the anger, whatever it is, just bring your attention back to what it is that you're trying to work on. And then non-judgment is, uh, we talked about before, but it is so easy to fall into that place of criticism. So I always encourage everyone to treat your mind how you would treat your best friend. Mm. Hold your mind dear, like, like it's a baby in your arms. You wouldn't treat your best friend poorly. You wouldn't tell your best friend, you're doing this wrong, you're bad at this, how come you can never get this right? You wouldn't say that to your best friend, so why would you say that to yourself? Yeah. One of my favorite videos is the Jack-Jack video where you talk about this character from The Incredibles, if I'm not mistaken. Tell us a little bit about what inspired that video and what you're trying to articulate with that message. Yeah, absolutely. So when I was on retreat a while ago, they came up with this concept they shared where you treat your mind as you would treat your best friend, like, you know, it's, and you can even create a character for it. And being the person I am, I tend to go beyond that. And I wanted to make it fun and interesting. And my daughter was watching The Incredibles. And I saw this baby Jack-Jack who had all these superpowers, could shoot laser beams out of its eyes and turn things on fire and go invisible and do all this crazy stuff. But it's this adorable baby that you could never get mad at. And I thought, well, that's exactly how my mind is. My mind has <laughs> the ability to turn things on fire and make things look terrible. But 
when I treat it the way I would treat Jack, I'm able to better manage getting through any of it because none of it can be taken too personally. The mind is programmed to be a certain way. If you look at your mind like you would look at a baby like Jack Jack or create your own character, it really does help with being more mindful. Why is our mind doing that? Why why can't our mind just send us positive thoughts, no judgment, no negativity, no fear, no doubt, none of that? Why is it? Why are we hardwired to have the bad side of Jack-Jack and not just the cute side of Jack-Jack? You know, Billy, if you've learned about human evolution and we look back, we have, you know, the Homo sapien has been around for 200,000 years. And humans before the sapien, because Homo sapiens, only one species of human, have been around for 2.5 million years. These are rough numbers. But for about 190,000 of those 200,000 years of Homo sapiens existence, we were hunter-gatherers. We were out and about in small groups, five to eight people, trying to survive in the wilderness with bears and with snakes and with poisonous plants and all this stuff. And it was only the last 10,000 years that we went from being the middle of the food chain to the top of the food chain. But the brain that we are currently using is still the brain that's wired to be the hunter-gatherer, to survive the threats. And the only ones that did survive back then were the ones that were always perceiving threats everywhere, that were looking for threats. They were the Mm. ones that passed down their genetic code. All the other ones, if they were positive and they were all, nothing's going to be wrong, guess what? They got ate by the tiger, right? So it's a good thing that we were that way back then. But now the brain still operates under that system. And that's what causes us all this distress. So I think that mindfulness is a way to accelerate our evolution because we've gotten way beyond that in our societies, but our brain hasn't yet. But we can we can fast track it with mindfulness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, man. It's so funny because I've thought about this a lot, but actually... I haven't thought about the code piece, like the ones that didn't have that code as much. They didn't make it because they were a little bit too cavalier and they probably right. got eaten by the tiger or whatever, or whatever, whatever the animal is. I never <laughs> they didn't have tigers or whatever. I mean, here we are in this modern time where people go to work or they used to before all this craziness. And I know a big part of your practice is to help people at work. Why don't you start by just sharing some of the heartbreaking numbers of where where we're at stats wise with job satisfaction, productivity, all those sorts of things. I know you have some really compelling numbers. Where are we at numbers wise? And then how can a mindfulness practice at work help improve those numbers? And and, and what what would be involved in that, that sort of practice? Yeah. And, and the numbers are even before COVID, which is scary. Ones that st- stood out to me is that in the US, 83% of workers say that they are stressed by their work. say they're disengaged at work. And over 50% say that the stress has become so bad that it's impacting their their family life. It's impacting them well beyond work. And again, this is before COVID. The research hasn't really been done yet on COVID. And I would imagine it's even higher. Distraction is what leads people to not focus on their work and not be productive. And one study showed that 77 minutes a day are being spent by workers looking at non-work related content online. So that's a big portion of your day. That's over an hour, 17 minutes of our day, we're distracted. But why are we distracted? We get distracted because we're not engaged. We're not happy. We don't feel like we're involved. We're not feeling, we're feeling difficult emotions, stress. So we are numbing with some sort of online content. And I would say that there's two things that strike me as how to solve this. 
The first one is giving the employees the tools to be able to manage through the difficulty and manage through the stress. And there are things that people could do throughout the day. So we've been talking about sitting and meditating for 20, 30 minutes, whatever it is. But throughout the day, taking a breath, one mindful breath throughout the day, going for a short walk to leave if you're working from home, taking 10, 15 minutes to go for a walk without the phone, come back, give yourself that little break. It does wonders for you. And it's always something that you can do. I know how busy we are, but you can find five minutes in a day to go for a quick walk. And so the things that strike me though, and this is where it's a bigger challenge, is companies need to infuse this type of practice, this type of belief into the culture. No matter what, as much as, and and this is me being honest, as much as I can help anybody, and I believe I can, to be more mindful. If every day they walk into an environment, they're being asked to do things that put them into a state of fight or flight, all the mindfulness practice in the world will make it difficult. So companies need to adjust. Companies need to recognize the importance of doing this because for companies, they are spending so much money on mental health. I saw a number the other day, it said $190 billion was spent last year uh, by companies on employee well-being to handle the days taken off for work, the leave of absence, having to rehire or hire new people because people quit or having to let all these things cost money. So while of course that helps to get more of an ROI for organizations, but it's also just the right thing to do, ensuring your employees are happy. A hundred percent. And let's be real about this. If it's up to just the individual's it, it won't happen because it has to become cultural at these organizations for it to stick. Because otherwise, as you've said, every single time you try to get somewhere with your mindfulness practice, it's compromised because of a toxic work environment. So let's give the people a few things they could walk away with some parting gifts. One is how much time does this take? Because I think somebody listening might have the miss conception that it you need to spend hours upon hours doing this. So that's one. And then secondly, where should they go first? When this podcast is over, where should they go to seek information about mindfulness? Obviously, we're, we're going to get into to the work that you're doing. But in addition to that, where else can they go to either find tools or to find resources to help them with their mindfulness practice? So the first thing I would say to do is to use some of the things that we've been talking about, some of the breathing techniques. Don't make it where it's got to be 30, 45 minutes. Put a timer for two minutes. Put a timer. Right, right, after, right after this podcast, put a timer on for two minutes. Sit quietly. Observe your breathing. That's it. No need to overcomplicate it. Observe the breathing going in and out for two minutes, and that's all. And I'm a believer that Anything that you're looking to develop, you shouldn't try to do 45 minutes the first time if you've never done it before. James Clear has a great book, Atomic Habits, and he suggests that you start small. There's no reason to make this a big thing. Start small. Start with two minutes. And in terms of resources, there's so many great out there. I mean, of course, my website has some information and people could always reach out to me, but there is so much great information out there with meditation apps that guide you through. There are YouTube videos out there that I still think are great resources to find out more. And some individuals out there, I think could help you depending on your preference. You know, Tara Brock, Russell Brand has some great information about mindfulness and meditation. Eckhart Tolle, of course, if you're looking for more in that spiritual place. Sam Harris, 
Dan Harris. These, there's a lot of names out there that are in this industry seeking, uh, trying to help others to get really involved. And I would say there are great resources out there available that you can access at, uh, on YouTube or Google. So you mentioned a book, Atomic Habits. I know there's two books that are high, high, high on your list in terms of how they've impacted you. I wonder if you could share why they had the impact that they had. One is Go-Giver, the other is The Alchemist. Absolutely. So I think The Go-Giver is the greatest business book I've ever read. It teaches you the value of giving and giving in a way where you will ultimately receive, but that's not why you're doing it. It tells an incredible story of how of the five principles, the five laws of, of uh, the go-giver, the best thing that you can do is offer your value to another person. And for me, it's changed the way in which I approach business. It's the way, it's changed the way I approach negotiation and, and engagement and conversation. I never let it be about me. And I think the go-giver really helped me to make that transition. And then The Alchemist, I read every year. It's my favorite fiction book, and there's not a close second. It really does tell an amazing story of living out your legend or living out your purpose. When you know what it is and you're clear on what it is that you're here to do, I believe the universe will open up for you. Opportunities will arise. And I've seen it happen myself personally. I've experienced it. I've experienced the world just providing me with things that I never would have guessed, never would have anticipated they would have happened. And they did. And I hear so many others who have the same experience. And it's fascinating to hear of other stories of people who said, yeah, I put this out there. I said, I knew this is what I wanted to do. I didn't resist. I didn't push away. I didn't try to force. I allowed everything to come and they experienced it. They got what they were working towards. And The Alchemist has taught me that valuable lesson. And you're not alone too, because both books have huge followings for the reasons you've outlined. I'm going to share a quote from you and a word that you love. And I wondered if you could just tell me how you feel about these two things and what they mean, and then we'll wrap up. The quote is, if you don't go within, you go without. What I mean by that quote is that your life experience will never be fully content if you don't inquire within. Seek to understand the true nature of who you are, how you think, how you behave, how you feel, the programming, you'll always be at the mercy of experience. You'll never be free. So when you go within, you're able to free yourself and transform yourself into whoever it is that you want to be. Love it. And the word is equanimity. Why is that word so important to you? Equanimity is the, a state of being which is the complete opposite of dissatisfaction or suffering. Equanimity is being content in any situation, regardless of the circumstances. Equanimity means that I am still, I am at peace, and I am content, and nothing outside of me will sway me. So I like to think of it as the bamboo tree through a hurricane. The bamboo tree just rides, moves with it, right? It doesn't break off, it doesn't resist it. It just sways. That's the state in which one is at their most resilient. Well, Jay, I just got to say, man, this has been an absolute delight as I knew it would be amazing, amazing, amazing information, insights, and clear recipes 
for bringing mindfulness into the lives of the people that listen to this show. You could find Jay on LinkedIn for sure. And I highly suggest connecting with him there. His website is jayabasi.me. And let me spell it for you. It's J-A-Y-A-B-B-A-S-I. Don't make the mistake that many people make by putting two S's and one B. I've done it like a hundred times. Don't do that. So it's two B's, one S dot me. And to his own admission, the social world, his focus is LinkedIn. Where else can they or should they find you? He's got an amazing course, which truly takes a lot of these concepts, expands upon them and gives you a a step-by-step guide on how to embed a mindfulness practice into your life, which I highly recommend being a part of that. And I know you got coaching and consulting practice that goes along with it. So maybe you could share a little bit more to add some color to what I just shared. I appreciate it, Billy. So there are many different ways in which we go about providing services. And we offer one-on-one coaching to customize solutions for individuals. And with that, there's discovery, there's understanding where you're at, and then framing a program according to your needs. And then the online program is more of a, a group setting where we go through week over week, different practices, different topics to help you on a journey that took me six years to figure out. I do it in eight weeks for you to where you can really understand the nature of the way you are, the conditioning that you have, and how to break free from it. When it comes to the other services of consulting, any uh, organizations that ever need some support with providing these types of workshops in a micro, very short workshop or more of an extended workshop, we do those as well. Awesome. So go check out everything that that Jay is doing. I, I promise you, as you could tell just by this episode, the thoughtfulness, the care, the attention, the giving and the caring and the compassion that he brings, it's all real and literally trust Jay with my life. Jay, I want to give you the final word for this show. Uh, what's the last thing you want to leave with the audience? The last thing I'll leave is I was reading recently about the things that people say towards the end of their life and their major regrets. And it really surprised me. And the one that really stood out was, I wish that I took more time to allow myself to be happy. As one of the things that people said right before they die that on their deathbed, and I don't mean to get so dark here. I just mean to be truthful. And this is what's on my mind right now. There is no reason why you should be going through each and every day without experiencing joy, without being content, without being happy. That doesn't mean that you don't work. It doesn't mean that you don't do the things that you need to do to provide you for your family. But you should never sacrifice your contentment for anything. Mm. We wish most people could see that every day and take the action to ensure that they are happy and they're not allowing themselves to suffer unnecessarily. Love, love, love that. The words that I heard you say recently were, you, you could change the things you do each day, but it's actually more important to change the way you relate to the things you do each day. Jay Abbasi, thanks for being on Inside Out. Thank you for listening to this episode of Inside Out. I hope you took away some valuable insights that will help you in business and in life. If you like this show, the best payment you can give is to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform. You can also listen to past episodes and see a breakdown of all the best insights by going to insightoutshow.com. And for the record, there's no greater compliment than sharing this show with your friends on social media. So if there's an insight or a lesson that you liked, please share it and tag both me and today's guest. And until next time, remember, your next life-changing breakthrough moment may happen when you least expect it. Insight out.